everybody and welcome to a new episode of Evie's Korean Drama Podcast Show. My name is Evie, I'm your host, and I am a K-drama obsessive. So this is the show where I waffle on about all of the K-drama that I love. If you'd like to support the show, you can check out my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Evie Korean Drama Podcast. There you will find extra podcast episodes and updates on what I'm watching at the moment. Also, just before I get started, please be warned that I do swear a little bit on this show when I get excited. And when I'm talking about K-drama, I always get excited. Alright, so I thank you very, very much for listening and let's get on with the K-drama show. The drama that I have picked to chat about with you guys today is Love Alarm Season 2. So Love Alarm Season 2 is six episodes. As the name suggests, it is Season 2 of Love Alarm. So I do have a kind of in-depth discussion on the first season of Love Alarm um, already on my podcast, um, which must have been from, I want to say 2019, I think, maybe is when that one came out. And I didn't love it. I really didn't love the first season, but also because it's been, you know, by the time I was watching season two, it's been like well over a year. I also couldn't fucking remember one single thing about that drama, about season one, except for the fact that I didn't love it. Um, so, you know, by watching season two, it, it all came back to me and I remembered what was going on and what my feelings were around season one. Um, but I really like it's kind of a complicated one, I think, to even talk about because I did then remember that, you know, when I did my discussion on season one, like over a year ago, as I record this, one of the kind of big things that sort of stopped me from one of the things <laughs> that stopped me from sinking into that drama is that it really, really felt very unfinished. Like it felt like there was clearly an overarching narrative to the story with a beginning and end. But in season one, it's just chopped off in the middle. So it doesn't have that kind of, you know, um, season, season story arcs, which I think a lot of like American shows have that kind of feel to their multi-season formats. But Love Alarm is really one story chopped in the middle and you have to wait a year and a half or however it lot was um, to, to watch the end of the story realistically. Um, and obviously I think my experience watching this show in two separate parts like that with so long in between is going to be, I think, a very different experience to somebody who might have seen the second season come out and not have watched the first one yet and watched the whole 12 episodes of, you know, season one and two together as one story. I, I kind of feel like in some ways that would be a better watching experience. And I also feel like in some ways it would be a worse watching experience <laughs> better because, you know, you don't just suddenly like the drama just stops and you're like, what? Like, <laughs> what's going on? But I think a worse watching experience because for me, that season one, I just didn't love it. I really, really 
didn't connect with it, even though like I found it very enjoyable to watch and I, I found it very easy to watch, that's for sure, like super easy. But I just remember like I had so many issues with it and I really didn't walk away from it loving it at all. Well, season two, I kind of came too fresh. I kind of forgotten the characters and I feel like I was able to judge season two on its own for its own merits without attaching it in my mind to season one, which I just hadn't loved. And I think because of that, I think I ended up actually like really unexpectedly, really, really enjoying season two. But I also feel like I almost took it as its own standalone thing. And I felt really different differently about the characters in it because I was kind of taking them for what they are in season two without all the baggage from season one that I you know, hadn't liked. So it was kind, it's kind of a weird thing. And I think anyone maybe even listening to this episode and me discussing the show, you know, that might be something to keep in mind. I feel like the way that I'm engaging with this show might be very different to how say, for instance, if you haven't watched it yet and you go and watch it from the beginning right through, I feel like it might be a very, very different experience um, for you as a, as a watch. But, you know, I can only talk about how I've seen it and what I think of it. So I guess I'll, guess I'll do that and we'll see how this goes. <laughs> um, so I feel like I didn't even talk about oh, what the drama is. Um, so it, it, the se- season two, which I'm talking about today, came out in March 2021 on Netflix. Um, so it is six episodes. Uh, so Love Alarm season two, but in Korean it's called mm, it's called Chua Hamyon Urinun. Hmm, it's called something different. <laughs> I don't know how to fully translate that. Hmm. Anyway, so the casting is uh, the casting for this drama is kind of the reason that I was initially like really, really excited to watch it um, when season one came out. Uh, The female lead is played by the actress Kim So-hyun, who anyone who's been listening to this podcast of mine for more than two minutes knows that I love her very, very much. And she is my favorite thing in the world. I think she is just so great. Um, And then there are kind of two male. It's interesting. I feel like season one has a very definite male lead. But by the time you come into season two, I think um, the male lead sort of swap. Uh, so I want to say the male lead for season two is played by an actor called Jung Garam, who is very new to me. I have, don't feel like I've seen him in anything else other than this. Um, and then the guy who, who's sort of like the main dude in season one, I think he really takes a backseat in season two, played by the actor Song Kang. So the actor Song Kang is very up and coming at the moment. Um, my first experience with him was watching him in you know, this show, season one. So Love Alarm season one. And I didn't love him because I, I really didn't love his character. Uh, so I didn't really particularly connect. Um, but since then, I've seen this same actor in Sweet Home, which I loved. Like, I loved it so much. It's a fantastic kind of horror K-drama. It's a lot of fun and it's very dark. Um, and I thought, Song Kang, who plays, you know, it's a real ensemble drama, that one, but I, I, he really, you know, he's he's the lead in it. Um, I thought he was fantastic in it. I thought he was so good. Um, so it was really interesting kind of coming back to Love Alarm 
And I feel like my feelings around Song Kang have changed a lot because I have a lot more positive, you know, feelings, I guess, towards him now after seeing him in a drama that I loved and seeing him playing a character that I found really interesting and fascinating. And I thought he did such a good job. Um, and I think it made me, <laughs> for better or worse, I mean, I guess we all bring our own baggage to, you know, our, to watching shows, like from your past experience with these actors and actresses and other shows. Um, but I feel like it really changed the way that I felt about Song Kang's character in Love Alarm season two. So he plays a guy called Huang Sano, and I hated him in season one. I thought he was the biggest dickhead. I just, oh, I just wanted to sort of punch him in the face. And in season two, like he certainly has less to do. There's less of him being such an integral part of the story in season two, but I liked him a lot more and I felt I felt a lot more for him. I felt more sorry for him. And I feel like part of that, though, is that in season one, I felt like, sorry, this is a really weird discussion because I can't help but kind of keep harking back to the story as a whole, but I'll, I'll do my best. <laughs> um, but yeah, I couldn't help but feel like in season one, Sano is just, you know, he's he makes he does really bad stuff. I think he he only thinks about himself. He He's very, very you know, his, his world revolves around himself. And I don't mind that in a character, like that's a great character flaw to be explored. But I felt like in season one, the drama didn't really, or I didn't feel like it hung a hat on the fact that this guy was a bit of an asshole. <laughs> and he's kind of, it was like he was meant to be the cool, awesome dude. And yet I'm like, but he's acting so terribly and I don't like the things that he's doing mainly, you know, betraying his best friend to, you know, who already liked this girl. I just thought it was really cruel, some of the stuff that he did. Um, and I didn't like the way that the drama didn't, they just treated him like a hero, despite his actions, like he hadn't done anything wrong. And I think the reason that I like this character quite a bit in season two, even though, you know, he is kind of on the backbench a bit um, in terms of the story. Um, I think it's because the drama in season two really addresses that. It addresses this big problem I had with season one in that Sano is self-centered and this gets pointed out to him in this season. And he, I feel like he takes it on board and he accepts it and he understands that, yes, his actions have not been great. And as soon as he does that, as soon as the drama, you know, is aware that this guy's an asshole, I'm like, cool, I'm on board for this. Like, the long as the drama knows and it's talking about that and exploring that as a character trait, I'm totally on board for it. Um, so I ended up really liking Sano. Um, I, you know, I don't know if I agreed with everything he does in this season, but I did actually, like, I liked him and I, I felt quite, I felt a bit sad. <laughs> um, so I guess what I'll do now, is, what, an, what an all over the place discussion this is, like, my gosh. Um, I guess, oh, so there is some more familiar faces in this drama. I mean, I think quite a few familiar faces, but the one other person that I'll probably mention is... Um, the actress who plays the sister of the female lead, Kim Soo Hyun. So her character's name is Kim Jo Jo. So Kim Jo Jo is the female lead and the main character. And she has a sister who is not the, the most greatest person in the whole world. <laughs> Let's just say that. Um, but the sister is played by a bit of an up and coming actress called Go Min Shi. 
Uh, and I just mentioned her because she was also in Sweet Home uh, with the actor Song Kang. So I've just had that very, I think, recent experience with the actress Go Min Shi. And also in 2021, um, upcoming as I record this, there is a drama, I think it's called Youth of May, in which Go Min Shi is going to be starring, which I'm very, very interested in, um, kind of touches on a very intense and tumultuous period of history. Um, in the 1980s in Korea that I'm I don't know very much about and would like to know more about but also it's like a I think like a bit of a sweeping love story that's going to be done with the actor Lee Do-hyun who was also in Sweet Home so I, I really like the actress Go Min Shi like I like her a lot even though I totally don't like this character at all um but I I kind of feel like she's probably up and coming and we'll be seeing a lot more of her and I feel pretty good about that I like her a lot uh, so I won't really go into all the other faces, but there's a lot of people and a lot of stuff. So I, I guess I'll just try my best to tell you guys what season two is about. <laughs> Okay, uh, so let's see if I can do this. I think before I kind of give you a general setup of season two, I might just quickly touch on season one. So basically season one has Kim Jojo played by the actress Kim Soo-hyun. So Jojo is a high school student and we learn eventually through her backstory that she has experienced the most fucking traumatic thing in her past that you can even imagine. Like it's awful. So basically as a small child, she lived on Jeju Island and she, we kind of see this scene a lot where she wakes up in her house and both her parents are lying on the ground and they're both dead. And all the windows have been sealed with tape and locked. And they are, I don't know, like um, putting exhaust fumes or whatever it is, gas in the house. And basically it is a mass suicide of the whole family. So like her parents are trying to kill her and kill themselves. And Kim Jojo wakes up as a little girl. She's screaming for her parents to wake up, for her mom to wake up. She is pounding on the window. She manages to get out and she runs across this field away from the house, screaming and crying, holding this teddy bear, uh, which she drops. And it's really heavy. Like that's a really intense backstory. And I think that a lot of my problem with season one or some of, some of my problem with season one was that I didn't really understand this huge thing about her and what that meant for her in like the present day of the drama, because this drama is about romance. It is totally about emotional entanglements. And that's kind of what you think when you see, I think, the promo. You're like, oh, this is this is a love triangle. It's about who will Kim Jojo pick out of the two male leads. But really, eventually, from watching the whole thing, I have come to realize that it is actually a drama about a young woman who is so traumatized by her horrific past that she is completely incapable of opening her heart and trusting somebody with her heart. For one, because she doesn't, she thinks I should have died. My parents must have hated me. Why do I deserve to live? I think that she doesn't believe that she deserves to truly love someone. And she doesn't also truly trust someone else that they can truly love her because she doesn't believe that she deserves it. I think that all of that, like once I kind of realized that that was what this drama was about. It's about a woman who is terrified of 
commitment, really, like emotional commitment. She can't do it and she wants to run in the opposite direction and she has not faced the trauma of her past. And I think once I realized that that's what the show, that was the main emotional arc of the show, it actually isn't the love triangle stuff and the romance stuff so much. It's just that's, I guess, the way that they're choosing to tell this this emotional healing journey of this character, really. Um, and I kind of really liked that aspect of the show. Like I loved that, that healing journey that Kim Jojo goes on. It's just that so much of the show has so much focus, I think, on the love story and the, you know, the emotional love entanglements that I didn't really realize that, that what the show's main sort of thread or main theme really was for such a long time. And I think because of that, maybe I found some of the aspects of the show a bit confusing. Like, why have this, so the show has this love alarm. So basically it's set in the near future. There's an app that anytime someone comes within, I, th I can't remember, like 10 meter radius of you. Uh, and if they like you, they'll ring your love alarm, which sounds fucking hilarious. But of course there's all sorts of, you know, intense social issues that are rippling out. And one of the ones that I thought was really interesting is no one says, I love you anymore. Like, I love you has been made redundant. Because if you say, I love you to someone, but you don't ring their love alarm, they won't believe you, even if you mean it. So the world no longer relies on words as a way to reveal your inner emotions. It only relies on the technology of this app. And obviously that has changed the world dramatically. And I found that stuff so interesting. But I also, watching the show, while I was watching it, I kept finding it weird that it has this incredible, you know, intense backstory. Like it's such an intense sort of very near future dystopia in a way. Um, that's really interesting and so meaty and fascinating, I think, to explore the, you know, the ripple effects from a piece of technology like that. But the show doesn't really focus on that stuff. It really is just hinted at as the backdrop of the main story. And I was like, it's so weird, this just little romance thing when it's got all this interesting stuff as its setting, but it doesn't focus on it enough for me. But when I kind of realized the show wasn't really about the romance as such, or it is, of course it is, but it's not Maybe it's not the foundation of what the show is actually trying to do. That is Kim Jojo's emotional healing journey of facing the trauma of her past and learning to open up her heart to the person that she picks to open up her heart to. And when I kind of realized what the show was really like, what it wanted to be about, I feel like I felt so much, it sounds so weird, but I felt so much better about it. I was like, yeah, I can really get behind this now that I just understand what it is and what it's trying to be. And I think watching it in two massive, like with that massive break in between the two seasons didn't really help with me just understanding what it was trying to say. <laughs> sounds so weird, but I felt like because I couldn't understand what it was trying to do or say or be, I found it harder to connect with it emotionally myself. Um, so like I said, it was ups and downs to me watching it in the way that I did. Um, but for whatever reason, I ended up really, really liking season two and I didn't really like season one. Season two for me, 
it was, it feels like really dreamy and slow and quiet. And I know that some people are like, oh, it's too slow. And I totally get that if that was your reaction to it. But for some reason, and I, it might have just been my state of mind when I was watching it, I feel like I was really in the market for something slow and dreamy and gentle and in a way, like kind of positive. I know that sounds weird, but I felt like there was so much attention to detail of these very small moments where I just felt like they just exuded like positivity of these, these ideas of taking joy in the small moments of life. Like, you know, for instance, I'm just thinking, you know, just one of the many little moments, you know, and that would be Kim Jojo and the, her love interest, Heyong, who I'll talk about in a minute, um, you know, sitting on a bus together and the wind's coming in from outside and there's blossoms and you can just see that Kim Jojo and Heyong are just enjoying the beauty of this tiny moment sitting together next to each other with the wind. You know, it's just like, I don't know, it sounds kind of weird, but it really reminds me of the kind of, um, I don't know, I want to say care that, uh, you know, Studio Ghibli, like the Japanese animation movies, um, the kind of care that a lot of those movies like Howl's Moving Castle or Laputa Castle in the Sky, all these different ones, um, or like up on, I think it's up on Poppy's Hill. And they have this like, this hyper focus on these really small things like, cooking or cleaning or writing or studying that I don't know it, it just kind of focuses on the beauty of everyday normal actions and I really really love that idea I think of taking joy in small things because I think that that is the only way to be happy in life if you if you enjoy little ordinary things, I think if you can only be happy, if you attain something huge, then how would you ever actually be happy? You know, you have to be, you have to find joy in the quiet moments. And there was something about season two of Love Alarm that just made me think about that all the time. I was like, something about, you know, Kim Jojo looking at the blossoms out the window and there was just something in it there's something in the beauty I think of the way maybe the show is filmed um and it really looks gorgeous it makes the city look gorgeous but you know it doesn't that I think it's another way that they kind of did this thing of focusing on the small small bits of beauty and joy in the world is like for instance there's this place that they're always walking by because I think it's near like where Kim Jojo lives or between her and Heyong's house and it's this overpass over a busy like traffic locked road and there's all these like apartments like really high-rise apartments um, and they kept angling the camera so you can see you know the overpass and they'd be walking up it you could see the you know the big blocks of flats as you know silhouette against the sky and then there would be a train going by and there is so much beauty in the way that those shots uh yeah were filmed like so beautiful the way they're framed it's gorgeous but again it's this very like urban kind of place it's not like what you'd think of as traditionally scenic you know there aren't any trees it's not sweeping hills and a lake or beautiful ocean it's this just real kind of city inner city life and yet again finding the beauty in these these things that you might not always think of as beautiful and I, I loved that 
kind of vibe that the show had. Um, <laughs> I've got completely off topic there. That was actually something I was going to talk about later for my stuff that I loved. Um, but I'm jumping around all over the place. I think it's kind of it's kind of a difficult one for me to sort of maybe keep on track because I keep thinking back to <laughs> season one so much. But basically, the setup of the whole story is that you know this love alarm app thing exists, and of course. The whole reason that Love Alarm is part of this story, I think, for me anyway, is that Kim Jojo is unable to commit. She's unable to express her true self. She's unable to be emotionally vulnerable and truly allow herself to fall in love. And I feel like the idea of this technology is almost, you know, an, an analogy, I suppose. Is that the right word? Analogy? Metaphor? metaphor I don't know <laughs> I figure you guys know what I mean um for her emotional state you know it's an outward representation in that this love alarm thing exists and everyone around the world is very happily running around exposing their emotions and ringing each other's love love alarms and using that as a way to know whether they care about someone or someone cares about them and Kim Jojo is crippled by the existence of a love alarm. She does not want to ring anyone else's love alarm because she doesn't want to expose her heart. And so she kind of knows the developer who's this, you know, boy from school and they have whatever connection. And he gives her this shield on her love alarm, which basically means that she puts it on her app. Her app is still active so other people can ring her love alarm, but she will not ring anyone else's love alarm ever. So when that happened in the drama originally, I was like, what? Like, just stupid. Just get rid of your love alarm. And now watching the whole thing, I'm like, oh, it's yes, the love alarm exists in this world. It's a real piece of technology, but it's also just this metaphor for metaphor. I think that's the right word <laughs> for her feelings. Like really, it's just an outward representation of what the character is internally going through. So she puts the shield on her love alarm and can no longer ring anyone's. And it causes this big problem between her and, you know, her love interest, who's uh, Song Kang's character, Huang Sano, who's, you know, a very sad, neglected, rich boy who is also a bit self-centered and, you know, only kind of thinking of himself at this point of the story. Um, and, you know, really she does it purposely of her own volition because she's not ready to be herself around this boy. She, she loves him, but she's too afraid and she doesn't feel like she, I guess, deserves love at this point of the story. So she puts on the shield and she tells him she doesn't love him. And of course he believes her because love alarm doesn't ring whenever he's around. So it breaks them up and however many years pass, like five years or whatever, and through all these different things at the end of the first season, and I absolutely can't remember, this other dude who is um, Sano's best friend um, played, so this is in the first half, he's the second male lead, uh, played by the actor Jung Garam. So he plays a character called Heyong, who's gone to the same school, he's best friends with Sano, and Heyong has been secretly, utterly, completely in love with Kim Jojo since forever, but he never did anything about it because that's just the kind of dude that he is, and also she had a boyfriend at the time. Um, and Heyong and Kim Jojo sort of meet again all these years later, she is just as closed off as she ever was. But Heyong is this very sweet and tentative young man. And he is just willing to 
I guess, go slow, go at this glacial pace with her. And he has zero expectations. I mean, he has hopes. Obviously, he's desperate for her to be in love with him as well. But he also just loves her and to be near her is enough for him. And to take care of her and be kind to her is what makes him happy. And so they end up, I guess, falling in love. And that's sort of the end of season one. It's a very weird place to end the story. And so season two is set, I don't know what it's set later, I suppose, but it's all very spring and beautiful. And I remember the last drama was very autumn and beautiful season one. Um, so in season two, we just kind of meet up with Kim Jojo again and her and Heyong are just sort of kind of living their life as adults. So she is studying at uni and also working part-time in her ridiculous family's um, like convenience store. Um, and Heyong has actually got a job. So he's in the workforce now and he's working at the Love Alarm offices. So he's obviously doing all right for himself and he has a super nice, aesthetically pleasing apartment that has like massive windows and blossom trees outside and really long, like floaty white curtains that are floating in the wind all the time. It's very beautiful. I really liked it. So there's just so many scenes, like really slow, quiet scenes of just Kim Jojo and Heyong just sort of tentatively hanging out. And he's always kind of hoping that eventually he'll be able to ring her love alarm. And she's starting to, she's starting to feel a bit guilty, I guess, that, that she hasn't rung his, his love alarm. And, you know, but again, that's just this sort of outward representation of, you know, I guess in their relationship, he loves her more and she's just not sure. She's still not sure. Does she love him? Does she not love him? But she obviously does because you can see on her face when she sees him, she's happy for him to be around. But there's just this part of her again. And the same as it was when she was in a relationship with Sano, she's holding back and she can't let herself go fully. So it causes a lot of misunderstandings between them. And of course, she's not going to tell Heyong any of this stuff about the shield and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so really the drama, it's kind of weird. It's just about Jojo and Heyong sort of hanging out and being in love, even though, you know, neither of them quite realizes that she is in love with him. And then it's about Sano kind of who wants to be, I guess he wants to be an actor or something, but he's a bit shit at it and his own little issues at home. And he has a girlfriend who adores him, who he doesn't really care about, which is again, charming. <laughs> and he's just swanning around being handsome and then comes across Jojo again and obviously shakes things up in the relationship between Jojo and Heon. So I don't know, like it's not a super heavily plotted show, I want to say. Like I feel like there's so much meaty stuff going on, but it the story that the show really kind of decides to tell is this very, very quiet, melancholy, slow romance, really. Um, and then hidden behind that is really just Kim Jojo coming to terms with her emotional trauma as a child and learning how to, well, not even learning, but deciding to open up to to love to the person that she chooses and being in love with him. And 
I weirdly liked it. I really did. And I loved all the, you know, just the, the social issue, love alarm kind of technology stuff going on in the background. And there's some sort of mystery with the developer of the app because, you know, he's not the guy from the boy from school who has killed himself, which apparently happened in season one, but I can't remember. Um, so yeah, there's just lots of like little bits and bobs going on, but the main story, the main focus of the story is just so slow. It's just this emotional relationship. It's really, I don't know, it's, it's such an interesting show because it's, I do want to say it's a little bit unique. It's a little bit different. I feel like, you know, for better or worse, <laughs> whether people connect with it or not, um, I do think, I, I wonder if this is something to do with the whole Netflix thing, or I just feel like there has been some interesting kind of very unique feeling shows that have been coming out of that, I guess, that partnership um, that are a bit different. They're a bit different for me than some of the other dramas that I've watched. I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, my, my thoughts on this was that I really, really liked it. I did. But then part of me is like, why? Why was it just my state of mind at the moment that this was what I needed? Like, I don't know. Um, so anyway, I'm going to go through the stuff that I loved and there definitely was some stuff that I didn't love. So I'm going to touch on that as well. All right. So the stuff that I loved about Love Alarm season two, um, I loved Kim Sohyun, uh, obviously, <laughs> pretty obvious. Uh, I just think she's so good. I think she's so good in everything. I really, really love her. So I think that's no surprise to anybody who's listened to this show before. But yeah, for me, she's totally a reason to watch this. Um, like I said before, I really love the gentle melancholy of the show. Um, I found it really just a beautiful vibey kind of watch really weird um so that's kind of like I said that sort of small quiet focus like this you know taking pleasure in the small things like blossoms or wind in your face or walking down the street or you know just being with someone that you love and being quiet next to them I really loved all that stuff. Um, I also think that this this show looks gorgeous. And I remember thinking that about season one as well. Like it's a very good looking show. Um, this season's different because it's set during spring. So everything's very like pastely in terms of the colors. The city looks beautiful. The sky, the way that they use light in the show in terms of filming is gorgeous. Um, I loved all the stuff with like the train, like you know, everyone walking up the overpass and the train just like rushing by behind them like so beautiful and like I was saying the blossoms and the curtains floating around all romantically in the wind blossoms floating around everywhere like so lovely um I also really loved this very you know it's not very much in the show but there were I think it's only twice or something there's this very weird surreal kind of this moment where we like look inside the emotions of um Hyeyong who uh is I'm gonna say he's a male lead in this season um played by the actor Jung Garam so we kind of see inside his emotions at one point and we see inside Kim Jo Jo's and this is like a visual representation of basically both of them teetering on the edge of something extremely dark in their lives and I kind of loved that we got to see 
see it as the same visual representation for both of these characters, which is basically, you know, they've opened a door, like you don't see that, but you see them standing on the inside of an open door. The open door is obviously, you know, filled with light and leading back to the real world. And they're in, say, Kim Jo Jo's one, she is sitting at the top of these stairs and the stairs are surrounded by pitch black, like just nothingness and the stairs descend down and at the bottom there is pitch black water and there's nothing there's nothing in there and she's just sitting at the top of the stairs obviously you know not feeling very good holding this little teddy bear thing that's next to her which is of course the teddy that she ran away from her house on Jeju holding it is so dark but it's so surreally beautiful like it's gorgeous to look at and I kind of loved it for this you know it's the visual representation of Kim Jo Jo her her past her traumatic past that she has not faced you know that's what's in that place once you go through that door and then at one point in the drama we see for Hyeyong so her boyfriend at this point Lee Hyeyong we see him in that same place we see him at the bottom of the stairs like and that's for me again like it's so dark he has descended that far into this really really bad internal place in terms of his emotions and trauma realistically and he's sitting at the bottom of those stairs and he's looking at this little toy robot and of course this represents again his childhood the things that are unsaid in his life and there's a whole storyline with Hyeyong that I loved in this show I love Loved it because he's really not a major character in the first season. He's just sort of this, you know, just mooning over Kim Jo Jo and staring at her sadly from afar. Whilst I feel like in this season, he he feels like a more fleshed out person. Like I feel like I understand him. And I, I actually got to a point where I was like, Young has been through some shit. And he, I think he can understand Kim Jo Jo. And that's why he's so slow and quiet and tentative with her like he's so patient I guess um in a way that I think Sano isn't Sano is is even though Sano hasn't had an easy time either he is a lot more demanding he needs a lot more I think that Sano is a very needy young man because he's so desperate for love it's a very sad thing for him but I think that Kim Jojo isn't like or at least you know, during the the period of this drama, she's not really in a place emotionally to be able to deal with someone who needs so much, who is like kind of sucking her dry. I feel like she needs someone who's able to just be with her and be slow and enjoy those gentle small moments. And I really felt like Hyeyong was somebody who, because he has experienced his own very dark moments, I think he can really connect and understand her I think in terms of her own and maybe that there isn't something quite right with her and therefore he needs to take things slow um so I really liked it I like so in the drama Hyeyong sort of you know he finds out that he's his dad who's just gone isn't really gone he's in prison and he's killed somebody and he goes in because his dad is maybe going to be you know up for parole soon and a family member has to sign the form and Hyeyong goes and the dad's sort of trying to charm him but you just know he's just such a con man like he's it's just no good and you don't even you know I loved all this I thought it was shot so beautifully like you don't even see what the dad's saying you just see him moving and talking and you see Hyeyong just sitting there staring and 
I felt so sad for him. And I loved, you know, I loved that representation with the stairs, with him at the bottom of the stairs, with this huge, awful, awful thing that he has to deal with. And I loved the quiet way that Kim Jojo steps up and looks after him during those moments. I thought it was beautiful and really, really, I don't know, it was lovely. And I think it's so interesting, like maybe the conversation that the show has between, you know, this idea of relying on technology to believe that someone loves you as opposed to believing Kim Jojo because, you know, she's there, she's beside him, right? She looks after him at his lowest moment. Like that is what love is. Love is caring about someone and being there for someone. And I think Kim Jojo really shows her emotions through her actions. It's just that they live in this world where that's not enough. And I don't know, I thought all that kind of discussion around that was really interesting. So I really enjoyed it. Uh, so I feel like I went off a bit off, off topic there. So, uh, so the next thing that I have on my list of stuff that I, oh, I loved this. So Kim Jojo's emotional journey, I've obviously been talking about that a lot, but I feel like it's kind of hidden from the viewer until the very end. It's like, you don't even realize what a big deal this trauma is to her. You don't even realize that it is the root of all her problems until the end of the drama when she actually turns around and faces this trauma from her past. And that's the point when I realized, oh, this drama, that's what this drama is about. (laughs) It's about her being brave enough and strong enough to face the trauma and then choose love over fear. Like that's what this show is about. But I feel like I don't know if it's the way that it's edited or, or the, the way that the story is told, but I feel like the, the Watcher is really, really kept in the dark for a lot of the show about the fact that that's what the show is, is actually trying to say at its kind of core and foundation. So I, that's kind of weird. I don't know if it's it was the best way to bring that across. But at the same time, when that hit home at the end for me, which is in this big scene, total spoiling everything right now, but I guess, you know, it's not like a lot happens. (laughs) Um, But there's this scene where Kim Jojo, you know, the truth comes out about the shield and, you know, she's got this other developer thing at things so she's got a spear which basically means she can ring whoever's love alarm she picks and when Hyeyong finds out that she picked him and rang his love alarm because she picked him and not because her emotions you know automatically made it happen he's so hurt and betrayed but of course the fact that she picked him is maybe even a bigger deal than if it had happened naturally so anyway I actually quite liked all that stuff but they they sort their differences out of course um but while you know Kim Jojo's kind of waiting for Hyeyong to kind of realize and figure it out and she's trying to wait to see if he is going to come back to her or not and Sano's off dealing with his own shit she decides that alone she has to go and face this thing that has screwed up her entire life. And so she goes back to Jeju Island and she joins a marathon randomly. And I was like, it would have been nice if, you know, that whole theme of her, I think it was in the first season, but like I couldn't fucking remember it by this point. I think the idea is she runs a lot and that's her, you know, running away from this trauma and it's her her way of not really facing these things. You just run and you run and you face forward and you don't look back. And so she goes and joins this marathon. And of course, this is her running on Jeju Island now and it's about her facing the trauma. I definitely think it could have been threaded through in a way that the marathon was less out of the blue. Like she could have mentioned a marathon once 
single twice before this. But in saying that, I thought this whole scene, I loved it. It was so emotional. It really, really worked for me and hit home. So, and you know, Jeju Island looked beautiful. So she's running in this marathon and as she's running, she just begins to cry. Like, and we hear all this this stuff in her voiceover about how she feels like, you know, that she's hated herself, that she thinks she should have died, that she doesn't think she deserves to be alive and to be in love. And, you know, we kind of get this really deep understanding of the character that I feel was kind of, kind of like kept behind, behind the curtain, behind a door. I don't know. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like it was kind of not fully realized up until this point, or for me, at least this was the point where I kind of clicked and I was like, oh, this is what's going on with this woman. This is, this is why all her problems are. I mean, like I knew it, but I hadn't felt it to that moment. And then there's a scene where she just stops And all the runners are running past her and then they're gone and she sees herself as a small child. And, you know, the small child runs towards her and they embrace. And it's this, oh, it's so beautiful. Like, I mean, I've seen this in dramas before or movies before anything, you know, not just, um, you know, Korean dramas, but from all over the world, this idea of embracing the childhood version of the character to then finally love that child to love yourself, to accept that you are who you are so you can move on with your life. And I thought it was, even though, you know, I've seen it before, but I still just thought it was beautiful and so moving for me. I loved it. And there's this point that like actually made me nearly cry. And that's when Kim Jojo is, she's kind of imagining, you know, herself walking through the field after, you know, crying as a small child after she ran away from that house and her parents are dead and she's running through the field and she drops her teddy bear and she just leaves him there and keeps going without him. And she's sort of talking to the teddy bear and in voiceover, she's crying. She's like, you know, I didn't hate you to the teddy bear. You were just too heavy. Like I just couldn't do it but I didn't hate you. And of course, you know, she's talking about her parents. All these years, she's wondered why they did this thing. She's believed it's because they hated her. And finally, she's facing the truth or it is what it is. It's something that happened, but they didn't hate her, but she was too heavy. They couldn't do it. They couldn't survive the world. And it's this awful, sad, traumatic thing, but it's not her fault. And she's able to embrace the childhood version of herself and love herself and therefore feel deserving of love and be able to love Heyong in return. So I don't know. I thought it was powerful and beautiful and really emotional, even though I do feel like it almost sort of comes out of the blue and there wasn't like it wasn't threaded through. Uh, you know, it could have been a bit more for me. But at the same time, I felt utterly satisfied. I thought it was sweeping and beautiful. And I should mention the music in this drama, I think is another reason that I liked the vibes. It's just very gentle and just lulled me into this like very calm sort of place. Really, really nice, nice vibes. All right. Uh, so the next thing on my list that I really loved was the Heyong thing with his dad. So I already talked about that when Heyong goes to visit his dad in the jail and just the way Kim Jojo steps up and looks after him in his worst moments, you know, his darkest moments. I really loved that sort of maybe flip of their relationship. Um, another thing I really loved, um, I actually really liked Sano in this season. Um, I, I felt like I could understand his character a bit more or 
No, I mean, I understood his character in season one. I just like that he gets called out a bit for some of his, you know, maybe more self-centered behavior. But I did find him interesting in this season. And one thing that I loved with Sano was this weird relationship with his mother. His mother is, you know, <laughs> the head of this huge mansion. She's just dripping in jewels. She looks so elegant, so put together, and she's always standing on balconies smoking a cigarette. And she's so disconnected. Like their relationship is so strange. They have there's no, you know, mother-son affection. There's no family affection. There's no but there's something there. There's just something that was so compelling about this really weird relationship and it was like I don't even know how to explain it but I felt like it wasn't like a mother-son thing it was like two people on equal footing both trapped in this you know charade of a family both without the things that they wanted from their lives which is you know love and neither of them are able to kind of breach that gap and give it to each other either but there's some sort of understanding there between the two and just the kind of recurring, just little moments between them that kind of threaded through the drama. For some reason, I found them just so interesting and compelling. And I liked I liked the relationship that it's so, oh, it's not a big deal in the show and it's certainly not emphasized hugely and it's not a gushy like they hug at the end or and love each other again it's it's very subtle and strange but I I feel like their relationship did shift there's just this level of them understanding each other even if you know it doesn't really resolve anything and I loved it I thought it was really interesting uh, so obviously something I absolutely love about this drama is the love alarm app itself um even though the drama doesn't put a huge amount of focus on it and it's just the background for the story, which in some ways I feel sad about because it's so interesting, I want to know more. But in other ways, I kind of love when stories just use a really unusual setting as a backdrop, but it's not the point of the story. I feel like that adds so many interesting elements. Um, so as a storytelling device, like fascinating to have all these huge like social shifts happening in the background. Um, so... Yeah, I just I thought it was really interesting. So the the drama kind of touches on the idea of you know, the app has had all these different versions, so the technology's changing. The idea that the app can now tell you when someone is going to love you, like they don't love you yet, but they're there. Their little face is on a list of people who will develop feelings for you. And it, again, it means that the way that we as humans love other people or care about other people is changing in that people aren't going to, they're only going to kind of give their feelings to people that are appearing on their like, you know, their love alarm. It just basically means that everyone's reliant on this app to tell them what their feelings are and what the future of their, their romantic options are going to be. So it, in a way, as the drama is exploring, it closes off all the variables of human emotion and human nature and things that go against the grain and things that don't make sense to us, but are still true. And the idea that if Kim Jojo had never had the shield and had only on her app and had only ever trusted Love Alarm to, you know, resolve all her romantic feelings, she would be with Hwang Sano. Maybe she would be happy with him, but Heyong never would have even been an option. And yet, 
by the end of the show, she's with Hyeong. She's in love with Hyeong. She wants to be with Hyeong, and they are a good match. And you know they're going to have a good life together. And so it's just this idea that the idea of love alarm isn't, you know, it isn't all knowing. It isn't all powerful. Humans have choice. And I really liked that whole discussion. Um, I also loved the kind of hint at all these privacy issues. You know, there's this kind of police investigation ongoing, and it turns out that love alarm has kept everyone's private moments of when they've rung each other's love alarm so they can like prove things now, like affairs and all sorts of stuff. Like, so it's this big kind of privacy issue. Again, very interesting in this day and age, like this fantasy version of, you know, what exists out there in terms of these social media platforms that become the biggest, latest thing and everyone signs up. And, you know, for instance, some of these these kind of social media apps are like, you want to sign up? I want like all your information. I want access to all your contacts in your phone. Like, you know, we just give so much of ourselves all the time to these big conglomerates and corporations and like tech giants. And, we do it willingly in the same way that in Love Alarm they do. You know, they want the app. Of course they want the app. Everyone would want that app. But of course then there is the the downside, the dark side to these things. And I don't think there's any answers to these kind of questions. But I like that the show in its own kind of subtle, quiet way is raising these questions of, you know, this world that we live in now is so dependent on technology and you know like I'm not dissing technology like you know <laughs> I'm recording this on my phone and I'm I'm uploading it to an app and I'm sending it out into the world for people in all different countries to listen to me yap on about K-drama that presumably we all watch on the internet like I love all this stuff but I also think that I like that the show kind of is exploring the darker side of it too. Like it touches on again, like, oh, this, this whole, the suicide thing from the first season is touched on again in that people are mass suiciding because, you know, they have never had their love alarm wrong and people's worth and, you know, quality as a human being is suddenly being measured by how many love, you know, alarm, I don't know, rings you've had on your love alarm, which again, we're living in that society, you know, like who has more likes on their, their photo and, and who is going to doctor their photo to make it so you can get even more likes. And how fake is that as opposed to, you know, like it's just changing. Technology changes the way that we humans interact with each other and, you know, it's not all bad. It's not, but there are things to think about in that. And I think that's just really fascinating. Um, so yeah, I really enjoyed all that stuff. I thought it was amazing. I also think that the suicide scene thing, like, again, it's one of these moments where the show is shot so incredibly, like it's so horrific, you know, all these people are dead in this field and it's dusk and, you know, everything's just drenched in like blue dusky light. And there's these, you know, high rise buildings in the distance, almost like silhouette against the night sky. And one of the guys lying in this field dead wakes up and walks off. It is dark as fuck. And it looks like they've done such a good job in the way it looks. It's very, very powerful. So yeah, I love the way that this show is filmed. I think it's beautiful, even when it's being very fucking dark. Um, so I really, really liked the whole discussion towards the end of the drama, like that kind of idea of Kim Jojo's shield and her spear and the idea of, I loved it when she kind of, she finally gets through to Sano that she doesn't love him anymore. 
you know, like, yes, she used the shield to hide her emotions. And at that time she did love him. And this has completely sent this poor boy, like, I felt very sorry for him. It sent him on a complete spiral. He realizes that he could have had her. He could have been happy with her. She is someone that he cannot get over. And she did love him. Like, that's the truth of it. But she finally gets through to him now, all these years later, that it doesn't matter about the app. It doesn't matter what Love Alarm says. She has chosen the other man, Heyong, of her own volition. She has made that decision and her decision is her decision and it needs to be respected. And I loved it. I loved all that stuff. I loved the idea of human will, like almost like, you know, I guess I feel like in some ways the app represents, you know, fate, like being powerless and you just have to, you know, love the person that the app says you have to love. And Kim Jojo's whole thing is like, no, humans have choice. There is always choice. You can always make your own decisions for yourself. And I kind of found that theme really beautiful as well. Um, what else do I have on my little list? And when I say little, I mean extraordinarily long. <laughs> uh, so, oh, I've just said I really liked Young and Kim Jojo's quiet, gentle romance. I really did. Um, it's not like, you know, I, I wasn't having my heart swooning and my heart beating, but there was something a little bit authentic, I think, with this couple in that I felt like they could be real people, um, you know. It's not one of those sweeping romances with like a big proposal and all that kind of stuff, but it was just very quiet. And I felt like when the drama finished, I could imagine that they could still be together for 10 years and just live this quiet, happy life together. And I, I don't know, it felt just very real life to me, I think, in the way that they interacted, other than all the, you know, the drama stuff and the love triangle. <laughs> um, so what else? Um, I really, really like, oh, I really liked that. We find out at the end, the moment that Kim Jojo kind of, I don't want to say the, it's not the moment she knew that she loved Taeyong because she never is sure of her emotions. And that's part of her whole, like, I guess, issue and problem. But we find out the moment that the app kind of represents that she, she has fallen in love with Heyong. Like this is the point where her emotions are solidifying, I suppose. And she really, really loves him. And I think it's really interesting. So we find it out kind of, um, like later on in the drama, uh, that, uh, the kind of the developer guy who's been hidden and he goes to see Heyong and just gives Heyong a bit of a talking to, and he's like, you know, hey, Young, clearly fucking Kim Jojo really loves you. Like, of course she does. You don't need an app to know it. Like, you can just tell, blah, blah, blah. But then he's like, but because one of the reasons that Hyeyong freaks out so much about um, Kim Jojo's love for him is because he, on his phone, like, it will never ring. It'll never say that she loves him. But he has her on the list of people that will love him. And this is one of the things that enables him, I think, to keep going in their relationship with this hope that one day she might care for him in the way that he cares for her. Like, her face is there on the app that she will love him. And then we, there's this scene where Sano goes to see Kim Jojo at her university and causes an uproar in front of everyone and causes her all this like attention and media attention and a lot of like bullying. And it's really awful. And she runs off and he follows her outside and then he kisses her. And she doesn't push him away because, again, she's just so confused, this poor girl. She doesn't know what's going on in her heart with her emotions. But he kisses her and then leans away. And we see you know, at that time in the drama, when that happens, as soon as Kim Sano kisses her, 
her face disappears from Heyong's phone as someone that will love Heyong. So it disappears. So of course we think at the time it means, you know, Kim Jojo is going to love Sano again. Like this kiss has brought back her love for Sano and she's not going to love Heyong in the future anymore. But we find out later that the reason that her face disappeared from Heyong's list of people that would love him is because that was the moment that she did love him. She was no longer going to love him in the future. She loved him in that moment. And when I thought about it, I was like, wow, that means that the moment that Sano kissed her, all she was thinking about was Heyong. So she's like, that was the, like, the trigger that made her realize who she truly wanted to be with, you know, and I found that really interesting and I kind of really loved it. And I kind of love the way the drama tells you, but it never really tells you like you got to kind of like follow the thread. And I thought that was just really kind of fun and interesting because at the time you think Sano has such a big chance in that moment. And then in retrospect, you kind of realize, oh, that was the wrong thing for him to do. That was the point where he he enabled her to see what she wanted. So I don't know, I found it really interesting. There's a lot more I loved, but I'm going to move on to the stuff that I didn't love so much now. Alrighty, the stuff that I didn't love quite as much, there was one thing that I feel like I really hated. Um, <laughs> so there's this thing in the drama where Kim Jo Jo is this kind of anonymous artist. Uh, I don't know if it's like Instagram or what it is, but she basically does these incredible pieces of artwork um, and she calls them like the ringing world or she is the artist, the ringing world. And all her art pieces are very dark and melancholy and deal with you know, living in a world with love alarm and what that might be like. Um, but really, of course, um, the, the art pieces are her exploring her own inner traumas and they are very, very personal pieces about what she is feeling at the moment. But because they're so popular, you know, she has so many followers and, you know, she's anonymous, so everyone's very fascinated with who she is. They have interpreted her artwork to mean different things. So there's one piece that she's put up, I don't know how long, like years ago or whatever. And it's basically, I think it's something like a wolf with a certain amount of roses on the ground or something. I can't even remember. And she's written a little sort of cryptic thing about it because it's to do with some sort of emotional experience that she's going through at that point in time. But people have interpreted it to be almost like a prophecy of this you know, this love alarm suicide that's happened that's very, very famous that everyone knows about. And it's this, you know, shocking reaction to love alarm. I think it was something like 23 people did a suicide pact and all died in that field. And everyone's like, oh, 23 roses on the ground in this picture put up like maybe a few days before and 23 people died like it was a prophecy, something, you know, like people just going crazy over it. Um, and so she hasn't, she doesn't post as much anymore because there's kind of this, it's very scary, I suppose, the way that people are interpreting her, you know, just very personal pieces that are like a a visual diary really and there's one really scary dude who like he's obviously someone who feels very isolated and disenfranchised and he was part of the suicide pact and he is the man that we see in the drama waking up he doesn't die and he walks away 
But obviously, you know, this is a very, very troubled man who has gone through something extremely dark. And when he sees the artwork and he sees that there's 23 roses or whatever the amount was, he's like, the artist of this, The Ringing World, knew, they knew that I wasn't meant to die there because otherwise there would have been 24 roses. But I walked away, so there's only 23 or whatever the number is. But it's just so scary. Like, um, so this guy starts, you know, he figures out who she is and he, you know, I don't know, he's put all this responsibility on her for himself, for his, his life and his world. And I feel like so many other people are as well, you know, because of her drawings. And so it all comes out. There's this big sort of showdown and, you know, the police get involved and it comes out publicly that Kim Jojo who no one, you know, no one knows who she is, but now they do, is the artist of the ringing world that everyone's been so obsessed with. And everyone's like, you know, this Kim Jojo should take responsibility, you know, like she put up this artwork and it caused this, because, you know, this guy has been murdering people thinking that it's something in the artwork or something that she's wanted or something like it's awful. And all these fucking horrible people on the internet are like, yeah, it's her fault. Like, she, you know, she should take responsibility for these murders because she put up these pieces of artwork. And I'm just like, what the fuck? Like, it, it has nothing to do with it. Like, everyone, you know, she's not doing anything wrong. She never, ever, ever did anything wrong. And I get that there's lots of people out there who just want to troll and be mean on the internet or whatever. And so they're going to blame her for it. But then I kind of hated that the drama itself almost made Kim Jojo like need to justify it. So there's this thing where she puts up a post um, on this, you know, her ringing world site or whatever it is. And she's like, I'm Kim Jojo. I'm the artist that you know, used to be anonymous. And here's my story. So she says, like, it's not a prophecy. You know, she's just been drawing these personal drawings. And I'm like, of course, it's not a fucking prophecy. She shouldn't have to defend herself. Like, it's everyone else's problem if they think it is not hers. That's not fair to put that kind of level of burden on this poor girl. And then she in, in, in order to like justify herself to all these people on the internet, she tells them her personal baggage and her personal shit. She tells them that her parents, you know, she's a survivor of a mass suicide and she's gone through this trauma and that she didn't love herself and she needs to face all these things. And I was just like, I didn't, I kind of didn't like that she had to do that or the drama felt like it was necessary for her to air her stuff like that. And I feel like if Kim Jojo had felt compelled that it, it felt good for her to tell everyone her backstory, because that is some sort of way for her to face her fears and gain her own healing around the situation, then I would be like, yeah, girl, go for it. Do whatever you need to do for your own well-being. But I felt like it was more like she had to do it to justify, you know, that all the it's like she was pandering to all these horrible bullies on the internet instead of, you know, helping herself and her own well-being. I just thought it was kind of weird. And maybe I'm misunderstanding it and misreading what the drama was trying to say. 
But I just felt like, and then I felt like the fallout of that was also unrealistic. Like we see that she puts up this post. I don't know how many followers she has, but like something like 10,000 or something. And they're all like, you know, really, really interested in her. And she puts up this post about her really sad backstory. And then she walks out the door and walks around and goes to Jeju and like falls in love and everything's great. And I'm like, she would have so many reporters hounding her. Like she would have so many weirdos turning up at her door. Like she just exposed her identity. She told them this really sad story, but, you know, there's a lot of horrible people in the world and they're not going to care about these things. Like if they want to blame her, they're going to blame her for the, you know, for the pictures if they want to. Like, and I just felt like it was a really strange thing. And I'm going on and on and on about it. It was actually just like a two second scene. And I was kind of like at the time I was like, I hate this. And then the next second I was like, but also I don't care and I've forgotten it. But <laughs> by trying to explain what, what my problem was, it seems like it was a, a really huge issue for me. To be honest, it wasn't. It was just a small thing, but I kind of didn't love it. I didn't love it. Uh, so I've said that I, you know, I loved the whole kind of running metaphor thing for Kim Jojo, but I do wish that that had been threaded through the drama um, a bit more. I already said that before. I felt really sad for Sunno at the end. Um, and I, I really like, I really, really liked his arc uh, in this season. So I'm it's, this isn't really something that I didn't like. I actually liked it. I just felt sad for him as a character by the end. But, you know, I think that's a good thing because I used to hate him so much. Um, and I really liked his arc of, of kind of realizing that he kind of was a little bit kind of inward facing and that he wasn't really thinking about other people's feelings. And there was this really, really wonderful scene that I loved where um, – Hyeyeong kind of confronts him finally, like after Sano kind of realizes about Kim Jojo had the shield all those years ago and he goes to uni and he like kisses her um, and then, you know, they don't see each other for a bit and everyone turns up at Kim Jojo's house and she's freaking out and Hyeyeong kind of um, kind of faces, I guess, or faces up to Sano and he's like, you know, how could you do that to Kim Jojo? How could you go to her university? And Sano's like, well, you know, she wouldn't see me. It was the only way I could get to see her was to do it publicly so that she'd have to pay attention to him. And he's like, you know, I risked everything. I've risked my, you know, my dad's politics career and my own whatever, like, you know, he's risked his situation by doing this. And Heyong's like, yeah, you're thinking about yourself. You're thinking about everything you risked to get this thing that you want, which is Kim Jojo, but you never thought about what the consequences would be for her through your actions. And I feel like it's the first time that Sano really got like a bit of a telling off for kind of just doing what he wanted for himself and not thinking about other people's emotions and feelings. And I really, really liked it. Um, so this is actually clearly a note that was in the wrong section um, because I actually really liked it. I thought it was really good. I like the way he kind of faces up to it and he realizes that Heyong is correct, that he's right. And I think after that point is when Sano kind of truly begins to understand that Kim Jojo doesn't love him. And as a result, he begins to make changes and back off and help her um, in different ways rather than kind of trying to demand something from her. So I felt like there was a lot of growth for his character at that point point. And saying that, I did not love his ending um, only because, you know, there's this poor girl, this other woman who's completely obsessively in love with him. And she knows that, you know, Sano loves someone else and will never love him. And Sano kind of goes back to her at the end and he's like, look, you know, maybe if we hang out together a lot eventually, 
maybe I'll fall in love with you. And she's like, cool, well, I guess that's the best I'm ever going to get. So I love you so much. Let's do that. And I was like, that's so sad. <laughs> it was so sad. I felt really sad about it. But um, that's okay. That was just me. <laughs> I thought it was really sad for her and sad for him. And I was like, maybe they just need to break up and find people who you know, that they love and that love them back and have a healthy relationship or whatever. I also, uh, you know, there's, uh, Kim Jo Jo has the sister who's played by actress Go Min Shi uh, and she's just sort of doing her own thing, the whole drama. I didn't love her or her storyline very much. I don't feel like she learns anything or does anything particularly good. She just sort of like demands everything and kind of gets what she wants in the end and I don't know I didn't love it <laughs> I wasn't really sure what they were trying to say with that but that's all right um so overall I weirdly really really liked it um I feel like I went on a bit about one of the things I didn't like at the end um which probably sounds like I don't know like it makes it sound like I, I liked this a lot less than I did um I actually really really enjoyed it and when I was watching it you know that one thing that I particularly didn't like with Kim Jojo and you know her thing with the internet like it wasn't actually a big deal when I was watching it um, so, yeah, I really, really unexpectedly enjoyed this season two way more than I thought I was going to based on season one. And I do wonder if I watched the whole thing together, if I would still have felt that way or if I'd have had a completely different reaction. I don't know. But yeah, I liked it. Um, I feel like it was the right drama for me at the right time. It had a gentleness to it that I was, I guess I was really craving. So I really enjoyed it. Um, so I think, you know, should you watch it if you haven't watched it? you still want to watch it after I spoiled absolutely everything that ever happened in it uh yeah yeah I think so I think it's not the kind of drama that I'm gonna be like whoa it's the best drama in the world like everyone needs to go watch it but you know I don't think it's a waste of time either I think it has a lot of interesting things to say I think it kind of says them all in a really strange <laughs> kind of way where you kind of miss the point or I missed the point or missed the drama's point at some points but I, I feel like I caught up at the end and it was worth it for me. It was also just an enjoyable way to spend my time. So it is slow, like it's not super plotted or high stakes and, you know, <laughs> things could probably be resolved with some conversations, sort of. But when you take into account Kim Jojo's like trauma, then I kind of guess like it feels reasonable that it's not very easy for her to communicate about these things. So I don't know. I really, really liked it. I really liked this season. So I kind of say, yeah, I'd give it a go. Why not? What do you got to lose? It's only 12 episodes long in total, so that's not too bad. Um, so I think that's all I'm going to say on Love Alarm Season 2, the 2021 K-drama um, Netflix original that is six episodes long. So now it is time for my random thing of the week and I've got a little bit of just something I've been reading in a book that I just wanted to kind of talk about very briefly because I thought it was super interesting. Um, so anyone who's been listening to this podcast for more than two minutes uh, probably knows that I'm very interested in history and specifically in Joseon Korean history. So Joseon is the dynasty that ruled in Korea um, from 1392 for I think just over 500 years. And I've been reading this really interesting uh, history book at the moment that is basically 
a collection um, of translated into English uh, letters from the Joseon period. Uh, so basically letters between kings and queens and just random people and scholars and, uh, you know, like letters sent from the king to the people like you know announcements that kind of stuff and it's really really fascinating and the book also um, has been written by a historian so obviously there's a lot of context around the letters that are reproduced in the book so you can kind of understand what the history or the politics were around it so um, I'm not going to read like one of the letters or anything but I was reading through it and you know they're kind of talking about some of well there's this section I guess in the book called female rulers and there are a collection of letters that have been reproduced in English for me to read which has been very exciting um, that were written by queens during the Joseon dynasty but specifically by queen regents so um, because Joseon was kind of based on neo-confucius uh, ideology um, women I guess I want to say that on the whole, women did not have like a lot of opportunity to gain power or, you know, gain a powerful position and certainly did not have an opportunity to engage in, you know, politics or policymaking or anything like that. But throughout, you know, the, the whole period of Joseon, there are some exceptions to that, which is really, really interesting. Um, so it's not something that I knew much about, but just reading in the book, I found it really fascinating. So um, I can't remember how many there were. I think something like only four women, I think, throughout the whole Joseon dynasty. I hope I've got that number right. Who rose up to be queen dowager regents. So even if you're a queen, you may not necessarily have a lot of power. You might have, I don't know, it depends what, you know, family or clan you're related to that might enable you to have some power. But um there were a couple of women throughout Joseon history who rose up to be the most powerful person in the country, realistically. Um, and that is because a king came to the throne who was too young, um, who was deemed to be too young to actually rule properly. Um, and whoever was the queen dowager, so that means like in in not necessarily in age, but in status, the elder of the palace. So she might be the grandmother of the current king or, you know, a, a step grandmother of the king or whatever, something like that. Um, and so there's this particular queen that this book is sort of talking about. And she's very well known, I guess, in Korean history because she did two you know, huge policy things during her time as a as a queen regent, which means she was basically the ruler of Joseon for four years until she had to then hand it back to the king. So I'll just tell you a little bit, but she did these two huge changes, like uh, just crazy, like how big I think the ripple effect from these two like policies, I guess, that she put into place. And they just are at complete odds to each other. So I find it very fascinating. So I'm just going to read a little bit from the book. So hopefully we'll explain this a bit better than me. So the woman I'm talking about, her name is Queen Dowager Regent Chong Son. So she acted as a regent for King Sonjo. And Sonjo was king from, or alive, I don't know, from 1800, uh, king from 1800 to 1834. But when King Sonjo ascended to the throne, he was only 11 years old. So that meant that Queen Dowager uh, Chongson became Queen Dowager Regent Ch uh, Chongson. 
So during her four year regency, so she had to hand, you know, the throne, I guess, back to the king when he was like, what does that mean? 16. He came of age at 16 and he became the king again. But during her four year regency, Chong Son ruled as a sovereign. So there's been queen regents prior to that in Korean history, but they didn't all necessarily really become the most powerful person in Joseon, even if they were in name acting on behalf of the king. Because there's so much, I guess, you know, if you've seen any historical dramas, you know that the ministers and the scholar officials had a lot of power. And particularly if they're from these very prestigious, long lineage, you know, powerful families, sometimes they were able to completely kind of lock the kings or, you know, a queen dowager regent into really having no political power at all. So the interesting thing about Queen Dowager Regent Chongson is that she was powerful. She actually was. So it says here that she was called the female ruler. Um, officials addressed her as Jonah. So that's an appellation reserved for the ruler. And her position was referred to uh, as the Konwi, hmm, which refers to the throne. So that's kind of like, I feel like that's a really big deal um, that she did actually she ruled the country for those four years. Um, so as I said before, uh, Queen Dowager Regent Chongson, she did two major, major things in 1801, which is, I think, during her first year as regent. One of those things that she did was she sent out a like an edict or however you say that word, <laughs> like a ruling, I guess, that ended with this event known as the Catholic Persecution of 1801. So she basically sent out a letter to everybody around the country saying it is absolutely illegal for you to be Catholic right now. And it is completely legal for all the, you know, magistrates and, you know, guards and whatever, all the soldiers to um, go around and, and murder anyone <laughs> or execute anyone who is Catholic. So this led to basically... A persecution um, in which over 300 Catholics were executed. So, I mean, that is intense, right? So uh, I'm not really sure about all like the reasons behind this. Um, some of it is that they say that, you know, this kind of growing religion was sort of taking power or they saw that eventually it might take power away from the throne and the centralized politics. You know, it's kind of creating another power center in Joseon at the time. But then there's other people, I think scholars who say that perhaps the reason for the Catholic persecution was a little bit closer to home in that. You know, there was a lot of political rivals in the palace that the Queen Dowager Regent was able to use this situation to get back at them because they were a little bit more tolerant of the Catholics than, say, her political faction were. And really, it was a way to kind of connect her political enemies with Catholics and then, you know, purge them out realistically. So it's a pretty dark thing, like it led to a lot of executions and some very famous ones. Um, but the the interesting thing to me is the other thing that Queen Dowager Regent Chong Son did in 1801, the other big policy change that she made during her time as regent, was that she freed slaves. She abolished government 
slave ownership, which is huge because that system had existed, you know, so this is in 1801. It had existed since the founding of Joseon and, you know, had its roots way earlier in, I think, Korean history, as far as I know. I know it was like, I don't know when it started exactly, but definitely by the time Joseon came around, it was just, that's the way things were. Like the whole foundation of society was built on, you know, this, this form of slavery in Joseon. Um, so I just think that's really, really interesting. So it says that, um, uh, so there were at that time in 1801, two kinds of slaves and slaves are known as nobi. Um, so those belonging to the public organization and those belonging to private households. So public organization would be, you know, the, the magistrate kind of offices and government offices and gov government departments and like all that kind of stuff, palace slaves, blah, blah, blah. And then there would be private slaves. So that would be like, um, uh, you know, companions to young noble women and kitchen people and yard slaves, that kind of stuff. So the slaves that were manumitted in 1801, I've never heard of the word manumitted. I presume that means freed or something. Um, so the slaves that were freed, I guess, in 1801 amounted uh, to 66,000, over 66,000 households. So they were all uh, public slaves. So um, the abolition of slavery for slaves owned by private individuals had to wait until 1894. And I'm pretty sure that that was very much to do with that um, Dong Hak uh, peasant uh, uprising that happened at that time. So that was the people rising up against a lot of injustices that they, you know, I was going to say that they felt had been done towards them. I'm like, that had been. <laughs> Definitely there was injustices. So anyway, I think it's very interesting. One, um, there aren't a lot of very, very powerful, like politically, openly powerful women in Korean, uh, Joseon history, I should say. Um, you know, I'm sure there was some very, very powerful women, but I'm sure a lot of them might have had to work sort of more behind the scenes. Yeah, there weren't so many openly powerful in a public space uh, women. And so I found Queen Dowager Regent Chong Sun's story quite interesting. And then these two things that she did, you know, uh, leading to the execution of over 300 people. And then on the flip side of that, I don't know, letting go over 66,000 people from slavery, like that's pretty big deal. So, uh, you know, for better or worse, whatever kind of woman she was, she was obviously very fascinating. And I would like to know a lot more about her because I know very little. And basically I told you everything I know. <laughs> so anyway, I hope you enjoyed that very random, random thing. I found it very, very interesting. I love reading all these history books and just slowly piece by piece, learning a little bit more about Joseon and, and what life might've been like back then. Um, so yeah, that's it from me for my random thing of the week. Uh, so something that I'm loving this week uh, probably comes as no surprise, but I am very much enjoying um, all of the random history books, <laughs> Joseon history books that I have managed to collect. Um, I still have so much more reading to do. And because they some of them are a bit academic, which, you know, I'm not a very academic-y type of person, <laughs> to be honest. Um, so they're a little bit difficult for me to get through and I work through them extremely slowly, but um, I'm learning so much and I'm enjoying 
enjoying the process of learning about this history, Joseon history, so much. So some of the books that I've got on my to read and am reading kind of pile, uh, the one that I was talking about in my random thing. So this is called Epistolary Career, Letters in the Communicative Space of the Joseon, which is from 1392 to 1910. Um, it is the book of reproduced letters from the Joseon dynasty, which is absolutely fascinating. I've also got a book that I want to read that is called The Diary of 1636. And it was written about, I guess, you know, something that happened in 1636, <laughs> which is the second Manchu invasion of Korea. So in um, the late 1500s, Korea was invaded by Japanese armies and completely decimated, basically, up and down the whole peninsula um, in, I think, like a seven year war. And then less than or maybe 30 years later, actually, something like that, 30 years later or nearly 40 years later, um, they underwent a second massive crazy invasion, this time um, from Manchu, so by Manchu people, um, and that didn't end very well. Uh, so this is a diary written um, by someone who was, I think, quite high up in the court during the second Manchu invasion um, and has written about the experiences that they, they went through during that time. So I'm very excited to read that one. And I also have a book that is about everyday life in Joseon society. And I'm really excited to read that one. It's all about like... Oh, just all the kind of common people stuff that I think there's always less focus on. It's always a bit harder to find information about, um, you know, people tend to be maybe more interested in the royal family and these like really big events. And there seems to be a bit less information or that, you know, maybe information in English and information that I have access to perhaps about um, just how the normal people are living. So it's, it's a book that's really talking about society in terms of, um, you know, trade and, and, um, I don't know, like merchant stuff and marriage and, you know, food and everything. I don't even know. Just like completely just all the different aspects of normal everyday life. Um, so I'm really, really interested to read that one. And then I've also got one that looks really academic and hard and I don't even know how I'll go with it. It's called Sources of Korean Tradition. And I think it's very much about, um, you know, everyday life kind of rituals and where they all came from and how they worked. Um, so that one covers... Um, you know, per, uh, the period in Korean history prior to Joseon, but also a lot about Joseon as well, that I'm probably going to focus more on the Joseon kind of stuff because that's where my interest really lies. Um, so that was a big waffle, but I'm weirdly excited about all of these things and I can't wait till I've read them all. But also it takes me so long to read them that I'm not sure if I'll ever have read them all. But I guess I'll just keep chugging away bit by bit. <laughs> and if anyone's still listening to the podcast at this point, oh my gosh, thank you. Gosh, I'm such a waffler, aren't I? <laughs> So that brings me to the part of the show where I say an enormous thank you and shout out to my Patreons. Thank you to everyone who has chosen to support me on Patreon. Uh, it really means the world to me. Um, and your support of this show is extremely encouraging. Um, if anyone else does want to check out my Patreon, you can find it at www.patreon.com slash or like forward slash Lee one of those things. I feel like you know what I mean. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you very, very much, Patreon supporters. And